Welcome to the Fax Machine. We're pumped to have you tuned in for our show. I'm here with Noah and Emily, and we're going to share with you and each other three fascinating facts that we've gathered pertaining to this episode's theme, the World Cup. Now, that's not a smoothie. What? See, because a smoothie is a world cup. It's all mixed. (laughs) But the World Cup, rather... Everything in this episode will have to do with football's international month-long World Cup, and that's as a nod to this year's World Cup competition. We've found several shocking truths that have very little to do with actual soccer, and more to do with the crazy universe surrounding FIFA's World Cup. And just before we get started, a little reminder to check out our social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod, and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast, if you'd like to drop us a line or check out some cool bonus content that we're posting. And with that, I think we're ready. So I'll hand it over to Noah for the kickoff. My fact in this episode will be the 1958 World Cup in Sweden was not faked by the CIA and FIFA in order to test the effectiveness of television propaganda. (laughs) Um, Believe it or not, I know this is going to blow your mind that it actually happened. Shaking my foundation, (laughs) sir. I mean, you would think that'd be pretty obvious, but in fact, in 2002... A documentary aired in Sweden that claimed that the 1958 World Cup held in that country had in fact never occurred, but everyone thinks it did as a result of a sophisticated propaganda conspiracy enacted by the CIA and FIFA as one of the fronts of the Cold War. So this documentary apparently incited you know, massive public uproar, partly due to the fact that it was only after the documentary aired that they announced that it was in fact a hoax. What had actually aired was a mockumentary meant to illustrate how historical revisionism, in particular Holocaust denial, can be made to seem really convincing and to highlight the importance of source criticism and verification, especially when mass media is involved. So uh, Johann Lustedt, I think, the director said, uh, quote, We want to fool as many people as possible. I thought that if I could make people believe in this story or believe that these people or opinions exist, then it would have a great impact on viewers when they realized it was all fiction. Some people realized quite soon that the story was fake. Another group realized at the end of the film. Some people realized the next day when they discussed it with their workmates. But one small group of people didn't just fall for the hoax. They also thought that the theories were real. Uh, and I, So I took a little bit of time looking up other things that have been kind of documentarized that are fake. Um, and there's actually this whole genre of what's called docufiction, um, which is often confused with docudrama. <laughs> which is kind of the over-dramatization of something that actually did happen, but right. from like one person's perspective, or it's like anecdotally based, whereas docufiction is just completely made up. And my favorite example is uh, what Animal Planet did in 2011 when they released a docufiction mockumentary called Mermaids, The Body Found. <laughs> <laughs> and what this was was a, I believe, an hour-long special on television in which they interviewed experts and showed real footage of dead mermaid bodies. Okay, now what you didn't see if you're listening to the podcast were the quotation marks around real bodies. (laughs) (laughs) Those were very, the air quotes were there. A lot of air quotes in this segment. (laughs) Maybe water quotes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it was such a hit that 
Animal Planet, a fairly reputable, like, animal documentary like network. education resource. Yeah. 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 Purportedly education-based television got such good reviews that they, two years later in 2013, released Mermaids, The New Evidence. <laughs> it stands to date as the most watched program in Animal wow. Planet history. <laughs> the day after it was released... Uh, it, it attracted over 3.6 million viewers, which is a fairly decent rating for, for a network like Animal Planet. But so the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration... Noah? Or, Noah? Nice, yeah. Oh, yeah. hey, Noah. <laughs> so Noah, they were, they were pelted with so many demands for information. Um, their email servers were overrun, and they, they had to release a statement on their website that said, no evidence of aquatic humanoids has ever been found. <laughs> Rob, you were a swimmer in college. You're an aquatic yeah, I'm humanoid. I'm aquatic humanoid. I felt personally <laughs> <attacked>. insulted. <laughs> yeah, this, well, this has been happening to aquatic humanoids for centuries. Yeah. I just can't take it anymore. So you had more on the actual 1958 World Cup scandal? Yeah, so it's not... Yeah, okay. So the scandal isn't in 1958. Oh, it was invented oh, okay. and aired in 2002 because it did happen. So. Okay. That's right. <laughs> uh, <no>. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I, I misunderstood your entire... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just let's settle it once and for all. Was there a 1958 World Cup? Yes. Um, and uh, for one thing, it was the international debut of then 17-year-old Pele, whose oh, performance nice. in that final makes him still the youngest player to participate in, score in, and win a World Cup final. Amazingly, this game also had the oldest person to score in a World Cup final, who was uh, Niels Liedholm, I think, <laughs> of Sweden, <laughs> who said uh, of his fourth-minute goal in that game uh, that Brazil went on to win 5-2. to Quote, we were world champions, but there were 80 minutes left, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it was also uh, the first and so far only tournament where all four UK home nations, that is England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, all qualified. Uh, so in that 16-team World Cup, UK home countries made up a fourth of them. So wow. every single group had one Western European team, one Eastern European team, one of the four British teams, and one from the Americas. So I think it's interesting to draw a comparison between conspiracy theories, which are almost exclusively absurd and fictional, and conspiracy to commit fraud, which is a crime, and a distinction that a certain group of FIFA executives are learning the hard way. Um, so (laughs) since 2015, in fact. So this is a long and complicated story, but just let it suffice for summary to say that the investigations into the selection of World Cup hosts found that there was an extraordinarily brazen corruption within FIFA, you know, regarding the selection of the World Cup host, but also the marketing rights to FIFA games in the Americas, apparel sponsorships, for example, a, uh, at least in court documents, an unnamed, you know, sports apparel company, but that was revealed by several sources to be Nike, spent about $40 million in bribes to become the jersey sponsor for the Brazil uh, Brazilian national team. Wow. Just um, don't it, do it. <laughs> right. It just, just don't do it. <laughs> That was a slow burner. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Made it eventually. <laughs> yeah. So, so there was just, I mean, a lot of things other than that, including like ten million dollars paid to a one particular executive, Jack Warner from South Africa. Um, exactly what those were for is a little unclear, but some people think it has to do with the selection of South Africa as the World Cup host in 2010. Um, but I, Jack Warner's just a really weird guy, okay? And his, his reaction to this whole thing has been very strange, and I think it's worth uh, talking about. 
So he, Jack Warner is the former vice president of FIFA, and also, by the way, the minister of national security for Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, he was arrested in 2015 in conjunction with a scandal. And after he makes bail, he posts this insane rant on Facebook, where he holds up an article entitled, entitled FIFA frantically announces 2015 Summer World Cup in United States. And says, if FIFA is so bad, why is it that the United States wants to keep the FIFA World Cup? That article was from The Onion. <laughs> also, the World Cup had just been held the year before. So like, he believed that on site, which is weird because he was the vice president of FIFA. You would think you'd be like more in the know. Or like be, just be aware that that is not a possible outcome of anything. That they would just hold another World Cup the year after the previous one. It depends how much um, they paid, I guess. If they Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So I guess sort of tied to both of our uh, tangents here of historical revisionism and also crimes, um, <laughs> I looked into uh, sort of historically the application of historical revisionism in, I guess, kind of a legal sense. So, of course, the first thing that comes to mind, at least in some of my modern times, um, are sort of dictators uh, either burning records or censoring um, certain historical events uh, or even like the existence of certain people to try and kind of fit their narrative of propaganda. Uh, but in looking further back, I actually found out about this, to me, really creepy and almost Black Mirror-esque um, sort of uh, sentencing for a crime that was implemented in ancient Rome. So, have you guys heard the phrase damnatio memoriae? Wasn't that one of the unforgivable curses in Harry Potter? <laughs> that, I, I kind of hope it was, actually. I want to go back and check that. Damnatio memoriae. It just no, it works. Damnatio morori. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Hermione. <laughs> so, it is Latin for condemnation of memory. And essentially, uh, it was a sentence uh, sort of implemented by the Roman Senate. And it essentially consisted of erasing any record or memory of their existence as a human being. <laughs> oh, wow. Which is really, again, very Black Mirrorish and creepy. Um, it was considered by the Romans to be a punishment worse than death, which makes sense. And in terms of implementation, um, it basically consisted of the Roman government seizing you know, the property of the person who was sentenced this, um, sort of the destruction or defacing of any statues or likenesses of this person anywhere, um, and also striking them from any public records or inscriptions or anything like that at all. And it's interesting in that in history, this has been carried out, you know, in unofficial ways in terms of people taking down statues, obviously, um, with regime changes. But this is the only instance that I found where this was an actually legislated practice that was implemented, um, which I thought was very spooky, but also really cool. Um, but the irony of this is, is that we can never truly know, based on the evidence that we have for it occurring, how prevalent or effective it actually was, because if they succeeded, then we would have no record of it. Um, but so the, actually the first instance of Damnation Memoriae um, was actually invented for this guy named Herostratus. Uh, and he was infamous for being the arsonist who burned down the Temple of Artemis, which was mm -hmm. one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But he's also known for, uh, while he was being 
executed, um, admitting that he actually committed this act um, in an effort to sort of immortalize himself and live in infamy for having done mm. this crime. So the punishment was invented to basically do exactly what he didn't want to have happen. So fitting punishment. But ironically, we very clearly know his name. And actually, even the phrase herostratic fame is applied to cases, um, often with serial killers and things like that, of people seeking fame at any usually criminal cost. Wow, keep it light, Emily. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's <laughs> really meta. Got a little deep. That he did That's an really evil cool. thing yeah. to become famous. They tried to make him completely disappear. He survived, but he's still not famous. Yeah. Like, he kind of just came out average, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It was, just a, it was a wash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my fact for this episode is that in an unlikely intersection between beautiful music and the beautiful game, we have the 1990 World Cup to thank for the existence of the three tenors and... More generally speaking, the introduction of opera to mainstream pop music. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so Emily, just right off the bat, let me ask you a question. Yeah. What are the three tenors? So they're Luciano Pavarotti, Placido Domingo, and that other guy. I mean, Jose Carreras. Okay, <laughs> let me um, let me have a follow-up question. Who are those people? They <laughs> <laughs> are, are, unfortunately, three of the best tenors in the world. Okay. They came together and sang... Uh, classic opera pieces together, and okay. it's beautiful, and it makes you want to cry. And not spells from <laughs> Harry Potter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Luciano Pavarotti! Oh, so Pavarotti! <laughs> well, okay, see, the, the problem here is that I am a massive disadvantage, um, because the two co-hosts on this podcast are just, like, giant music nerds of all time periods, but especially, like, fancy shit. Like, <laughs> and there have been numerous times at the trivia we host where like one of them will be hosting will be asking some question like who is the guy who's known as the opera it was the nose oh Cyrano Cyrano de Bergerac. De Bergerac. oh my god <laughs> <laughs> so please by all means continue <laughs> well, my fact shows how soccer can bridge the gap between high art and what draws everyone together so this is perfect. So basically, this all began with an interesting choice made by the BBC, um, who selected a 1972 recording of a Puccini aria as a theme for their coverage of the 1990 World Cup. That aria was Nessun Dorma from Turandò, the opera. And in particular, uh, the rendition selected was by the king of the high seas, the note, not the ocean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, seas. Yes. Not <laughs> oh, geez. Sorry, a fifth off. Um, so this at the time was a kind of unheard of <laughs> marketing approach. <laughs> but generally, like, music that was used for the World Cup at the time was sort of, like, composed for the event and that kind of, like, generic, uplifting instrumental music that you imagine, like, overlaying sports montages and stuff like that. But in the case of the 1990 World Cup, Producers of the BBC selected this piece after seeing how well it paired with actually promotional footage um, of the Italians, who were the hosts of that World Cup, uh, preparing for the event, and also you know included the Italian heritage and uh, the association of Italian culture with the arts and with opera. The piece became immediately popular upon its use in World Cup coverage and actually reached number two on the UK singles chart of all the music for five weeks. Um, and since then, it's been indelibly associated with soccer. 
Um, so to try and kind of understand this in terms of the impact that it had at the time of this World Cup, I read through a bunch of editorials and blog posts that were written by exceptionally wistful, soccer-loving Brits who watched that World Cup. And basically, I saw quite a bit uh, emphasizing sort of the inherent passion and romance of the song. The song actually concludes with this huge, triumphant melodic swell that ends on a high A with the repeated phrase, Vincero, meaning, I will win. On the eve of the final of the 1990 World Cup, a concert was held in Rome's Baths of Caracalla, and this concert featured some names that will now probably sound a little familiar, though no, I know you know them all cold. Of course, yeah. Luciano Pavarotti, oh. Placido Domingo, and Jose Carreras. Three for three, check. They may ring a bell as the three tenors, and that was their first ever concert together. Wow. Um, and it's actually kind of a neat thing. I found um, an article put out by the New York Times right after it happened with Pavarotti. Um, and he said that they actually, the three of them, had been asked to perform together at least 50 times, but they chose to actually do it and come together for this for two reasons. Uh, right before this, Jose Carreras actually recovered from leukemia, so it was kind of celebrate his return to the stage. Oh. But also, they all loved soccer and were like, hey, this is a pretty cool reason for us to That's together. Great. Sure, yeah. that sounds good. And actually, we almost lost Pavarotti to soccer. Um, oh, as a young man, he almost went down that career path to be a professional goalkeeper. Oh, okay. But then ended up seeing Oprah instead. So the crazy success of this inaugural concert of theirs, and actually the album from it, went triple platinum in the U.S. And to this day is the best-selling classical music album of all time. This led to the formation of the three tenors, and actually after this concert, they went on to perform 30-some-odd concerts and make a bunch of albums in the decade that followed, and they performed also at three subsequent World Cups in 1994, 98, and 2002, but it even had a more lasting impact in terms of popularizing uh, stadium opera concerts, hmm. um, and the sorts of pop opera, or as it's sometimes called, popra, uh, <laughs> that genre that comes with it. So think of artists like Andrea Bocelli, Josh Groban, Il Devo, all of those people kind Josh of rode Groban. on the coattails of the three Josh tenors. Josh opera? Josh Groban has like a oh, classical yeah, trained voice. Wow. Yeah. That's why he's so unique. So between that, uh, it also brought opera to a mass audience as it was you know, played during the World Cup and also demonstrated to music executives that opera can actually have mass appeal and a ma mass market commercial viability. So it sort of changed the genre and kind of created this new genre that is now more accessible and popular and I don't know, it's, it's kind of cool. I actually looked for other places where it kind of intersected with popular culture. Great. And yeah. so there were actually several and like I would say a laundry list of movies that use popular arias from operas um, to kind of mm. get these really climactic moments. And it makes sense because the music is, is constructed in such a way that it is the maximum emotion possible. And so movies kind of naturally can build on, on that energy. And so Nessendorma, uh, the aria that we've been talking about, actually is the, the music playing in the movie Some of All Fears during one of the most dramatic scenes. Mm -hmm. It kind of ends in a car exploding. Um, I, don't, I won't Whoa. tell you whose car, <laughs> in case you haven't seen it. But there's this dramatic buildup of people walking around and kind of like several things happening. And it ends with uh, the explosion of a car um, as part of this kind of assassination. Uh, really dramatic scene in the movie, but I found some other great example because I personally learned about classical music from Bugs Bunny, and I okay. don't know if this yeah. is true, but I forever. Think so yeah, Marriage yeah. of Figaro or Barbara, Barbara Seville, Seville. Sorry. yeah, The Rabbit of Seville. 
Right. <laughs> as, as it's known. I never saw that. Oh, yeah. And he, he had a, a few Bugs Bunny uh, episodes that really featured different pieces of classical music. Um, the other one that was kind of famous was uh, Rhapsody Rabbit, where he played, I think, the Hungarian Rhapsody. Hmm. Uh, but so they were not afraid to do this. Neither was Disney. Disney made the Fantasia movies, obviously. Uh, but some of the best examples otherwise, um, maybe for a generation slightly later than Looney Tunes, was there's the opera episode of Hey Arnold. Yes, they had Carmen. Yeah, everyone re- everyone oh, remembers I the Bizet, but... Yeah. <laughs> I did not watch that show. No, and this no. is why you don't know about opera. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but in, trace it back to Hey Arnold. <laughs> but there were, I think, four operas featured. It was, I think it was called uh, Helga Takes the Opera. Um, and basically the characters go see many different operas and then they act out different right. parts of oh. it with the romance between... And that definitely had Wagner too. I have a distinct memory of her in the hat with the horns. Yes. The yeah, so the, the I think moment. they did uh, Ride of the Valkyries as yeah. well. Yeah, I think so. Oh uh, but also with that all English dubbed musics about the kids in Hey Arnold, huh. which was fantastic. Uh, and the last one I just want to mention, because you did this earlier, and I don't know if this was a nod or just like a, a, a consequential joke. Throughout Seinfeld, um, in yeah. one episode called The Doll, it was? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> so throughout the whole episode, they say, Placido Domingo, Luciano Pavarotti, and uh, that other guy. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was Seinfeld's kind of classic joke about no one really knows who the third tenor was. Which was okay, I haven't seen that either, so <laughs> yeah. I've never seen Seinfeld. Mm. Oh, boy. I'll try one more. Okay. In The okay. Simpsons, in the Homer of Seville, an episode of The Simpsons, Noah's face is showing me right away. This is a no. <laughs> I have seen a smattering of Simpsons episodes. Homer tells Placido Domingo to his face that he's his third favorite of the three tenors. <laughs> okay. And this week, I'd like to present that anecdotally, hospitals in World Cup host countries report an uptick in the birth rate around nine months after hosting the World Cup. Oh, okay. So this might be familiar. It's a complete coincidence. No one has ever come up with a theory as to why the two things... No, obviously. <laughs> you can't come up with a theory. <laughs> we can't speculate. But yeah, so obviously there's this thought that countries that host the World Cup have something, some kind of energy, some kind of emotion that leads people to behave in such a way as to increase the birth rate nine months later. Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) And so what's interesting is the number of different things that this kind of effect has been attributed to. Uh, And so several World Cup host countries have kind of had this uh, mentioned about them. Uh, Famously, in uh, 2006, Germany hosted the World Cup, and in February and March of 2007, uh, many German hospitals reported the fact that birth rates in the hospitals were at an all-time high. This is especially important for Germany because Germany has the lowest birth rate in the European Union, and the European Union birth rate and Germany's are incredibly stable. So a fluctuation of even 10% from month to month is like astronomically large. Huh. Uh, and so, again, these are anecdotal insofar as only a few hospitals were surveyed. Um, they were looked at for a short period of time. They weren't necessarily statistically controlled. These were done by journalists who just pointed out the fact that this kind of phenomenon was happening. Not super rigorous. Um, In 2017, something interesting happened. Iceland qualified uh, in the Euros in the soccer tournament. Um, This was a huge deal for Iceland. They're a very Mm -hmm. small nation. Um, This year's World Cup is a big deal. They also qualified in the 2018 World Cup. Uh, But in 2017, they had never qualified for any major European tournament before. Uh, And that's because they only have about 300,000 people in the entire country. And so 
uh, in this match that they played, 27,000 people of their 300,000 person population were at the match. Yeah. It's estimated that 99.8% of all remaining Icelanders watched the game live. That's amazing. Yeah. This was the most kind of comprehensive behavior um, by a nation for anything. They also, the fans, have this really unique clap after they've won a game, which is not the raucous jumping up and down and cheering that you see in other countries, but it's this incredibly coordinated, like, hands-over-head, straight-arm clap that basically the <laughs> yeah. entire nation does it once, and after each clap, they go, ho! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I've seen it. It's incredible. It's like a YMCA type? Or... So if you were the it's... angriest person in a YMCA. So basically, yeah. it's, just, it's just pure silence, and then... A drum goes, and everybody goes, like that all at once, and like claps, and it's so amazing. And then it, then there's a very long pause, and then it happens again, and then a still quite long pause, and then it's a little shorter, and it gets, but very gradually it gets faster, closer and closer together. They are Um, purest of the slow. Very very cool. Yeah. Wow. But so obviously they take their soccer very seriously. Nine months after their appearance in the Euros. Um, their birth rate was reported at an all-time high in their local hospitals. We can only imagine what we'll see in February or March of 2019 as a result <laughs> of this World Cup. <laughs> Another great story. Um, this one a little bit closer to home. Something that was called the Red Sox phenomenon of 2005. Hmm? So the Red Sox phenomenon occurred in 2005 as a result of the 2004 World Series, uh, where the Red Sox defeated the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, the Boston Globe reported, in, in a Boston Globe kind of way, that anecdotal evidence showed a lot of Red Sox fans had, um, banged pots and pans in celebration. <laughs> but there were other people there. I know, what were they thinking? <laughs> Just imagine the dishes in the morning. <laughs> but needless to say, the birth rate uh, at several local Boston hospitals was uh, reported by news sources and journalists who have risen uh, about nine months after the 2004 World Series. Uh, so this sort of effect, it's been described anecdotally in a lot of places. Uh, it's not limited to a host country. If a country does well in a sporting event, it's often linked to that. It's definitely not limited to soccer. Uh, there have been Super Bowl cities that have also reported this happening. Um, it's not even limited to sports. Some of the most interesting things... Um, there is a rumor that was completely unconfirmed by most hospitals that were surveyed that the blackout following Hurricane Sandy led mm. to massive increases in the birth rate in New York City. Uh, and this was reported by the New York Times. However, it was a report of a report, essentially hospitals that were eventually surveyed that looked at the data nine months after Hurricane Sandy found no increase whatsoever. Interesting. Um, not even like statistically insignificant, but just like it, it was a flat line. Um one that did show potentially a significant increase that I thought was hilarious was the 2013 government shutdown, <laughs> where the government shut down for maybe 10 days. And then in Washington, D.C., there was a slight raise in the birth rate nine months later. <laughs> but so th- this kind of phenomenon is possible. Um, no such spike that I've ever found has been reported for a Women's World Cup, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Or fortunately. I don't know. Weirdly, Honestly. do you know what the most watched soccer game in u.s history is what it's the 2015 women's world cup i don't doubt it because i was one of them yeah i was absolutely (laughs) i do not discriminate when it comes to reasons to drink and have a great time watching soccer exactly yeah but that one i mean they won the world cup which the u.s men's team has never done no subsequent increase in birth rate shots fired (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you heard me. And maybe pay them the same amount of money, U.S. Soccer Federation. Mm-hmm. Maybe let them play on grass. <laughs> All fair points. They this... don't play on grass? Wait, what? No, that was no, a huge all... scandal. Yeah. So while the United States has never experienced soccer-related nymphomanic birth rate increase, um, <laughs> there is evidence of this happening in many other countries. And I'd actually like to point to one specific event that was so significant that it took medical researchers uh, who went back and actually verified that it happened. <laughs> and so this is a study that occurred. Uh, this was published in the British Medical Journal. Uh, which British Medical Journal? Oh, it was in the famed British Medical Journal, the British Medical Journal. Oh, the British Medical uh, Journal. Yeah, the British Medical Journal. Of British Medical Journal fame. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you've heard of it. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2009, in the European Champions League, uh, the league consisting of all the most dominant teams, the championship teams from each country's independent leagues. Barcelona was playing in a playoff game to make it to the final. Uh, with very little time left on the clock, they were not winning. And one of their players, Iniesta, scored an amazing goal at the last second to kind of push them into victory so that they would advance to the Champions League final. This was the single most exciting event uh, in Barcelona soccer that year. And so... With that goal that projected them into the Champions League final, which they eventually won 2-0 over Manchester United, uh, the fans of Barcelona went absolutely insane. This was just such a massive deal that the birth rate in Spain, in Barcelona specifically, nine months later, was reported in some hospitals as being 45% (laughs) higher than in previous years. Wow. (laughs) Now, this drew the skepticism of some scientists who thought that that was a bit much. (laughs) And so an entire scientific study went into interviewing, finding, and looking at the causes of these births that were specifically reported in the Barcelona hospitals in 2009-10. This study was just hands down one of the most interesting pieces of scientific writing that I have ever read. Uh, Their results kind of settled out that nine months after Barcelona, there was an increase in the birth rate. They found that while there may have been close to a 40% increase in some hospitals, others were significantly lower. However, they can attribute 16% of the increase to the victory. (laughs) And this was called the Iniesta effect, named after the player who scored that last-minute goal in the semifinal game. Uh, so I, I also read this paper, actually. It's, it is, um, Isn't it unlike any other scientific I have never writing. read a scientific paper quite like this, that used language like this. Okay, I have I, I, one, one of the quotes, I have several here. Uh, the putative cause of this spike in natality was Iniesta's breathtaking goal, and the children born during this boom came to be known as popularly as the Iniesta generation, implying that Iniesta had fathered, through surrogates, hundreds or even thousands of babies. <laughs> um, I like I like this part too. Uh, uh, we may infer that at least among the target population, the heightened euphoria following a victory can cultivate hedonic sensations that result in intimate celebrations of which unplanned births may be a consequence. But finally, um, so just just to, just uh, in case this wasn't mentioned, um, they in this uh, semifinal match they beat Chelsea Football Club. Mm. It's a, a club in London, uh, and this quote goes. Ideally, to bridge the gap between observational and trial data, it would help greatly if Iniesta were willing to replicate his intervention, although the costs of such a study could be prohibitive, not to mention harmful to the reference group, Chelsea Football Club. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's incredible. Um, But actually, just jumping off that point and talking about, uh, you know, uh, sort of silly papers uh, in serious medical journals... 
Um, it's also funny that you mentioned the birth rates in and around Germany, and particularly Berlin, earlier, uh, because there's a paper in the journal Pediatric and Perinatal Epidemiology in which they claim that data from Berlin show a significant correlation between the increase in the stork population around the city and the increase in deliveries outside of city hospitals. And they, they go on, this, I mean, it's amazing. They go on to say, two different theories exist concerning the origin of children. The theory of sexual reproduction <laughs> and the theory of the stork. <laughs> so uh, one of the amazing things they say in this is, According to the work of Professor Erki Alto from the University of Helsinki, the evidence supporting the theory of the stork is based on six facts, okay? <laughs> Number one, storks exist. Quote, it is a scientifically established fact that the stork exists, which is confirmed by ornithologists. <laughs> Two, unexplained features of fetal development. <laughs> they, they don't elaborate on that. <laughs> Three, the theory of sexual reproduction implies that a child is approximately nine months old at birth, which is an absurd claim because all parents know that a newborn child is newborn. Okay. <laughs> Four, sexual intercourse without delivery. Quote, according to the theory of sexual reproduction, children are a result of sexual intercourse. There are, however, well-documented cases where sexual intercourse has not led to the birth of a child. <laughs> it should be restated as no scientifically proven absolute cause and effect relationship exists between intercourse and delivery. <laughs> and then finally, uh, there's a five that, that they've found a positive correlation of birth rate to stork population. And number six just says scientific studies. <laughs> <laughs> Science, my um, But of, of course, you may have guessed this is, I mean, it's a legitimate scientific journal, and this was actually a humorous article for the purposes of education, attempting to demonstrate, you know, mainly to students how you could get across any result you want if you cherry pick, like, just the right sources of data. Um, for example, the number of out-of-hospital deliveries is just vanishingly small, and, you know, like, modern uh, Berlin. Um, and they said that they, they, they said one of the first flags, anyone reading this, uh, thinking that it was going to be serious was that they said they could discount all in hospital deliveries as it is common knowledge that there are no, there are no storks in hospitals, <laughs> but of course, obviously neglecting their entire point of thesis is that storks are the reason that babies are delivered. So if there's no, you know, that, so that is a gaping hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So actually, that story reminds me um, of a website that I'm a really big fan of. Um, so if you search spurious correlations, it'll come up, though the URL is something different. But basically, it was a website developed by this guy named Tyler Vegan yeah. um, while he was a criminology student at Harvard Law. And essentially, while he was there, he developed a program that would mine publicly available data sets and then pick out unexpected and inexplicable correlations uh, with a similar premise of sort of showing that just because two phenomenon uh, trend very similarly doesn't mean they actually have any kind of causal relationship or shared influences between them. Uh, so there is a 66.6% correlation uh, between the number of people who drowned by falling into a pool and films that Nicolas Cage appeared in. Oh, that just speaks for itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next up, with 95% correlation, mm. per capita cheese consumption in the U.S. correlates with the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bed sheets. Well, personally, oh. the amount of cheese that I eat increases when I'm sad and lonely. And when I'm sad and lonely, I spend quite a lot of time in my bed. So mm. I think as I eat more and more cheese, as I consume more and more cheese, I'm more likely to have just, you know, bed-related death. 
Is that okay. is that it? <laughs> <laughs> is that your, this is this isn't the quiz portion of the podcast. <laughs> I can see that. I saw something where I recall, at least like in a lot of Victorian literature, the idea that, oh, I had this strange nightmare. I must have eaten a piece of bad cheese or a mustard seed or something. So perhaps mm. all that thrashing about from inappropriately <laughs> Or maybe your team just won the World Cup. Cheese. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so full of cheese. <laughs> and fashion. <laughs> uh, so the last one that I had in mind, and this was the one with the highest correlation um, of the list, with 99% correlation, the divorce rate in Maine correlates with per capita consumption of margarine. If you have more cow farmers in Maine, mm. and margarine's driving them out of business, then they're going to yes, lose the farm. stress. Yeah. Why would margarine consumption drive cow farmers out of business? Because they make butter based. out of the milk. But and cream, that, their business would be booming. No, no, margarine is vegetable based. Yeah, it's, is it? It's, it's completely dairy. like it's yeah. synthetic. Yeah, let's yeah. cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so to wrap things up today, I have prepared a quiz for you guys, in which I will be asking you about nations that have participated in the World Cup. Sweet. However, the way this round is designed is, I want to ask you about not only what they did in the World Cup but also something else about them. So I will give you two facts okay. about a nation. Okay. One will be about some aspect of their World Cup participation. The other one will be completely divorced of the World Cup. And with those two facts, I'd like you to tell me what nation I'm talking about. Okay. Sweet. Rob, I just want you to know that Emily and I discussed it. Our confidence level is 100%, okay? And we think that you're going down right now. I'm just saying, yeah. like us, we're going to take you down. You and your little quiz, too. Well, I only have one thing to say to that, and that's scoreboard, guys. Let's see it. <laughs> oh, you're lucky this table's separating us. <laughs> I would climb over there and I would, well, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. So for the first question in this quiz, please tell me, what nation with over 12 million cows but only 3 million people has over half of its population living in its capital city? And okay. was the first host of a World Cup. It's Uruguay. That's correct. Nice. 1930. Yep. First they host, also won it. First host and first nice. victor. Yes. Sorry, did you want to say those things? No. Those, <laughs> <laughs> it means nothing to me. <laughs> but yes, Uruguay, first host, first victor. Um, one to four human to cow population. And <laughs> 1.5 million of the 3 million people live in Montevideo, the capital yep. of Uruguay. That's cool. Very nice. The second question, what country whose highest placing in the World Cup was 11th in 1986, was also the setting of a famous Humphrey Bogart movie. Morocco. That is correct. He's looking at you, kid. Question number three. What country, the home of cinematic character Wolf the Dentist Stanson, made their first appearance in 2018? You say, can you repeat it? His name is Wolf the Dentist Stanson, and he is also fictional. It's not a real wolf yeah. practicing dentistry. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. What nice teeth you have. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so he was named Wolf because he had a reputation for removing teeth from like his it. opponents. Oh, okay. Well, Iceland. Yeah. It is Iceland. Oh. Are yeah. you kidding me? There you go. <laughs> Sorry if I led you astray. So the dentist... Mm. So, Wolf the Dentist Stanson was a fictional former NHL hockey player and rival of coach Gordon Bombay. Oh! 
Yes. In the Mighty Ducks? In the Mi- Mighty Ducks D2, the Mighty Ducks. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Hailed from Iceland. <laughs> yeah. Your fourth question. This country, who is represented in the 2018 World Cup in Group B, has a capital city in the Middle East that has been ranked as the worst air pollution in the world, and it is estimated that 27 deaths daily can be linked to uh, respiratory diseases from that pollution. Iran is in the Middle East. Iran played on Friday. It's Iran. Uh, it's Tehran. Oh, it's, uh, we think it's we think it's Tehran. It of is. Iran. Okay. It is okay. Iran. Nice. nice. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, they have been ranked with the worst air pollution in the world, far in wow. excess of any other city uh, measured. And the the respiratory death number is a little hard to pin down, but that's been used in a couple of news sources that say that the uh, hospitals citing respiratory disease among non-smokers. Um, and so it really kind of lends itself to being uh, air pollution and kind of environmental causes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. All right. Question five. What country who by land area is 62% covered by the same mountain range as featured in the 1965 movie did not attend the 1938 World Cup despite qualifying? Well, I'm, I want to say it's like the sound of music. So, uh, oh, Austria, because Austria stopped being a country before the World Cup happens. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So Austria was a European powerhouse in 1938 yeah. until something happened, and it was no longer Austria. Right. <laughs> yes. Germany, yeah. at the time, was probably the second or third best team in Europe, and they mm. thought for sure that acquiring the Austrian players would make them the best team in Europe. Not so. <laughs> and fortunately, did not win. Um, yeah. But this little annexation, of course, the credit of Hitler, uh, who we can now say we have mentioned in four consecutive episodes of oh, Facts good. Machine, keeping the keeping the streak alive. We did we it, did. guys. We yeah. did it. <laughs> Question number six: What country that has failed to defeat Brazil seven times in World Cup play recently had one of their most famous musicians miss joining the twenty-seven club by a year? The 27 Club. What's that? So they died at 26. So the 27 Club includes like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of celebrities who died at age 27. So this is a country yeah. who's... I would say their most prominent musician uh, passed away, narrowly missing the 27 Club. Oh. In either direction. And you said it was recently that they passed away? Yes. Yes. So it could have been 28, So, but I'm not sure that's going to give us the answer. Oh, right, it's true. They go in either direction, of course. And that country has a historic World Cup rivalry with Brazil, where they have five times lost and twice tied Brazil in World Cup play. Well, I I can tell you now from my fact that Sweden lost the 1958 World Cup to Brazil. On the other hand, think of a celebrity who matches. Isn't focused on that angle because not sports tastically inclined. So, about that musician, uh, despite the fact that he was a very well-known musician in his genre, uh, you've rarely, if ever, heard his voice. Kim (laughs) Jong-un. Just want to check. Shakira's still alive, right? (laughs) Yes. You can't just drop that on me. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Every night I ask myself, is Shakira okay? Who died? Um, Who's died recently? If, if it would help, I could give you their real name. I don't That'd know if it will. Sure. He is Tim Bergling. Um, he has been in this genre of music for... He had been in this genre for 12 years. 
Oh, um, give the, me something. The, give me the, any the DJ who passed away recently. Oh, What's it his name? is. Is it Sweden? No, no, no. No, my, no Avicii. But where's so he, where he from? So where's he from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it? It's gotta be the Netherlands or something. Yeah, then. yeah. Or where? Where, where he's from? Belgium. Oh, well, we can't just name all the countries. <laughs> <laughs> just go down I, the list. I, I have an excellent poker face, so I will not reveal if you're even close. Okay. So you, you do need to just kind of stick But you, you will reveal if we get it, right? If you say with <laughs> yeah. conviction the answer, I will tell you. Okay. All right. <laughs> I will say they are playing in this World Cup. So, Belgium. I think Belgium... Okay. See, the thing about Belgium mm. is that I know from a World Cup commercial okay. that they have the largest electronic dance festival in the world, I think. Ooh, that's... that. I'd say that. Yeah, I'm happy with that. All right, we're going with Belgium. Belgium. All right, Belgium. They're my dark horse for this year's World Cup. They are not the correct answer. Uh, It was Sweden. Oh, you uh, jerk. I guess he's right at the poker face. Oh, God. But yes. Okay. Avicii, Mm -hmm. the um, DJ, remixer, and producer from Sweden, um, passed away earlier this year, unfortunately, at the age of 28. uh, April 20th. Uh, okay, two countries left to go. A large portion of this country was formerly known as Biafra, and this year they are sporting a very exciting green and white uh, I know it. zigzag striped kit or jersey representing the Super Eagles. Let me know whenever you're ready. I, I don't know it at all, so it's take the It's a green, white, super, it's super exciting? Uh, super there... Eagles, I said. But it is super, super exciting. Eagles. Okay, so what was the adjective you used to describe the zigzags? The green? Oh, there wasn't one? There, just... there certainly was. I just have no recollection of it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm still making a lot of this up. All right, so, <laughs> so the super exciting green jersey, and I, I'm going to talk to you now, is okay, Nigeria's jersey. It is super exciting. There are many zigzags. Okay. The thing complicating that is that I can't, really remember if Nigeria's like crest has an eagle or any sort of bird in it. But Germany is wearing a weird, possibly zigzaggy green jersey and some really? and it, it hasn't yet. I don't think it has yet. I can't remember what they were wearing the other day. Um, oh, but they crazy. do have an eagle in their logo. So this is our dilemma. Is it what everyone knows is the very exciting green jersey from Nigeria, or is it the one that's definitely green? But zigzags were mentioned. Would there be zigzags? There's also an entirely other half of the fact to help you identify this country. Can you read it again? (laughs) Yes. Part of this nation, formerly known as Biafra. Yeah, I mean, that's the part that I'm like, oh, well, it's probably Nigeria, but I don't know if that used to be a name for Germany. Let's go with Nigeria, because that is the one everyone would say, that's the exciting green one. And also, Germany wasn't a nation until relatively recently in history, so maybe they wouldn't exactly. have too so many. Exactly, so it might have formerly been known as Biafra. Oh, I suppose. Which, since we've never heard of it before, of it. we can't be sure that yeah. we just don't know that thing about Germany. Because I definitely don't know it about Nigeria. Yeah, and neither do I. All right. <laughs> so I, I think we're going to go with Nigeria. Yeah. And it is Nigeria. Woo! Nice. nice. Solid. Yeah. For, for European history, um, much of Europe was kind of the clans that didn't have necessarily like country names, but they were the, uh, everyone who like the vandals who would mm-hmm. like sack Rome periodically. Right. And then under Charlemagne, they kind of united it and made the Holy Roman empire, the Austro Hungarian right. empire exactly. and the modern yeah. Germanic empires. Yeah. Um, Biafra is probably a really messed up version of what they would have once called that region of Africa, huh. but it was a colonial name of part of Nigeria, of Makes Eastern sense. Nigeria. I believe. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. 
Okay. Right, your final question. The highest peak in this nation is known as Pico de Nablina, known as the Mist Peak, 9,827 feet tall. They are also the first South American nation to win a World Cup in Europe. Brazil's first World Cup was in 58. That was in, that was in Europe. Maybe... Uh, from nowhere other than I associate that. I, d- I mean, really it <laughs> could be Brazil. <laughs> it could yeah. be. I mean, they they won a few while, while Pele was on the team. Yeah. They won, I think, three. Mm-hmm. Um, stretched over a long period, but that would have... So it, it, was, it had to be after Pele. It had to be before Pele. The pre-Pele period. Yeah, the pre-Pele period. PPP is it's known. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then they won... So that's three. And then they would have... Yeah. So before that, it couldn't have been, because that was their first one. But it could have been 58. That's what I'm saying. I know. Let's... <laughs> my, my cautious side says, say, Brazil, because we know that it is a country that... Argentina has won a World Cup. They've won two, I think, right? Definitely, but I don't know when or where. <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> well to be honest yeah. we, know, we know one exactly when and where because it's 1958 so, <laughs> so our safest bet would be saying that that is our safest bet we don't have any other knowledge except we know that there's this sort of lame mountain there is there a lame mountain in Brazil uh, what was the name again it was the Pica de Neblina de? de Pico de Neblina alright so like you mentioned Argentina won twice most recently in 1986 in Mexico City but their first win was in 1978 in Buenos Aires Argentina oh, man. Brazil has won five World Cups three of them occurred in South America uh, in Mexico City I should are in the Americas in Chile in Mexico City um, and in the United States one of them occurred in Asia but the first one in 1958 was oh, in no. Sweden. Oh, no. No other oh, South American God. nation, including Brazil, has ever won another World Cup in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We were going to say Brazil. Yeah, for, for a long time there. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, it's, this is a game changer. It's the Pico da Neblina. Oh, God damn it! Oh. Oh. I'm that's, sorry. We're gonna issue a challenge. A, that is a huge game changer. That is yes. a game changer. <laughs> yeah, that, that, is. that is the contraction of the and ah, which exists yeah. in Portuguese. We we insist on that question being stricken from the record. Yes. And a new question being issued on the spot. Uh. <laughs> Go. <laughs> so given given my illiteracy in Portuguese, I apologize. But now, your final question. Of this trivia round. What country, who was considered the first to legalize same-sex marriage in 2001, had a 36-year gap between World Cup appearances and has lost in three finals without ever winning? I think it's the Netherlands. I think it is. I'm, I'm, you know, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the Netherlands was the first to legalize... I remember being a very big deal, but it could have just been because it was obviously marriage, right? it's That's very Catholic. Yes, same yeah. sex marriage. I think it's the Netherlands. And so. also in terms of their record. But I, they also, too. they lost to Spain kind of recently in a World Cup. 36-year gap. Is I think it was in 2010 they lost to Spain. I yeah. think that was the final. Yeah. So that's one of them. Yeah. I can't think of any World Cups they've won. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right, you're right. Okay. Are you sure? We'll go with it. I think it's the Netherlands. I'm not saying it definitely is the Netherlands. I'm down. I'm down. No. All right. I think there's better We're going with there. the Netherlands. 
It is the Netherlands. Okay, Yay! Well done. Well done. Good well done. job. Cool. Yes, the, the last fact I did not tell you, this country also has the <laughs> tallest average man on Earth. Yeah, and it's interesting. Really? They actually used to be mm-hmm. the shortest country in Europe. Well, then and they, then, they then, bootstrapped their way up. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> their first World Cup appearance was 1934. The second okay. was 1938. Their third was 1974. Wow. Quite, oh, quite wow. a long and uh, possibly... Like there are good reasons, but I, I did not research into why they were, were absent for so long. Mm. Um, since 1974, they made it into three finals and lost them all. Um, they're the kind of very re- recognizable orange jerseys, also absent from this year's World Cup. Yes, um, and a couple things I think are interesting. One is that I have a German friend who told me that the Germans uh, sing a song when they play the Netherlands, and it's uh, it basically goes. I'm gonna oh I'm gonna get this so wrong because I'm gonna do it in German. Uh, no, I'm not. Come on, <laughs> can we get all the I can't ages. remember it. Um, but the Germans sing the song when they play the Netherlands, and it's basically only garbage men wear orange, <laughs> and they just sing that line over and over again. It's like only garbage men wear orange. Only garbage men wear orange. <laughs> <laughs> just over and over again. Um, and the other interesting thing about that is that the obviously they, in 2010 the Netherlands lost in the final to Spain, and in one of the later verses of the Netherlands national anthem, it actually says, "To the King of Spain, I pledge lifelong loyalty." Really, that is a fact. Yeah, interesting. Oh. Yep. They just never got around to editing that line out. Guess not. Yeah. <laughs> final final callback. Do you know who scored the goal in that one nothing defeat Spain served the Netherlands in 2010? Is it a callback? Yeah. Oh. Is it Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was the father of a generation. It was Andres Iniesta. Oh. oh. Yeah. All right, that's all we have prepared for you this time. I'm glad we got to explore these World Cup facts and some national trivia together. Don't forget to check out our social media accounts also uh, at Fax Machine Pod on Twitter and Instagram and Fax Machine Podcast on Facebook. We'll be back next time with some fun new facts. Hope to see you there. Quando la luce splende